Well, hey there, everybody, and welcome back to The Long Con, the podcast that takes a lighthearted and informative look at the destruction of American representative democracy and the collapse of Western civilization. I say welcome back because hopefully uh, you are a return listener. If so, we are grateful to have you here and uh, for your continued interest. Uh, If uh, not, this is the second part of a two-part interview uh, with New York Times bestselling author and uh, National Book Award finalist, uh, Nancy McLean. Her book uh, was a finalist for the National Book Award, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Right Stealth Plan for America is its uh, full title, and it is all of that and more. So we are in a real crisis point as a country. Uh, Right now, we are all feeling the effects of coronavirus and how quickly things can be shut down and we can all uh, be separated and, um, you know, run out of the ability to to do the basic things we take for granted. So um, if there's ever been a time for us to kind of stop and reassess what it means to be a country and whether uh, we do want any sort of uh, uh, collective rights and collective action, um, I would think this is probably it. So um, we're calling this episode uh, Tomorrow's Dystopia Today uh, because we're getting pretty close to where things are irreversible, and that's really the entire point of uh, Nancy's book. But also, I have to say, uh, this interview that we conducted with Nancy was actually done in the summer of 2018, so it was almost 18 months ago. I don't think it matters at all because, you know, this show is about uh, looking at the past and how it relates to today, and... Um, Gosh, it just is even more topical 18 months later than it was then. And in fact, um, it kind of makes it resonate even more uh, because we see just how much closer we are to, um, to this end game. And, um, you know, it, it sounds uh, extreme to say that the noose is being tightened around our necks, the, the, the boots are on our neck, but that is, that's what's happening, folks. And it's not red versus white. It's not Democrat versus uh, uh, Republican. Um, it is all of us being intentionally uh, divided and weakened uh, because of this tiny subset of extremely wealthy uh, people and all of their agents in the policy combine that really want to um, put democracy in chains, which was the entire point of, uh, of Nancy's book and uh, where we pick up with this story. So it's a little disheartening at first, but uh, you know, you would never try to cure cancer without having a full diagnosis. And uh, you know, this um, dark money uh, stealth right uh, you know, plot is, is a cancer. Uh, on all of us. So um, I think we need to listen to all of it. And I think uh, we can talk about solutions after we get done here. But if you have not read Nancy's book or, or been up to speed on, on what's really going on, if names like James Buchanan and Milton Friedman um, and John Birch don't mean anything to you and Ayn Rand, uh, then it's even more important to uh, get tuned in. So thank you all for being here. Look forward to a friendly and civil conversation. On the other side of this, uh, hopefully uh, at a live event sometime once that uh, self-distancing is done. So uh, thanks, everybody, and please enjoy the rest of our uh, amazing conversation with Nancy McLean. So the Mont Pelerin Society, like that was in 1947, right? Yeah. And you said in the book that like they, to your point about the secrecy and all, I mean, that uh-huh. was one of the things they said right away, wasn't it? That we have to be secretive and we have to be willing to use disinformation because the majority of people will not go along with our aims. It wouldn't uh, be popular. I wouldn't say, it, it actually, the, the anti-democratic stuff developed more 
over time, and mm. it really began to settle in in the 1970s, um, in the wake the, of the campus protest. Secrecy, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was yeah, oh, some always, secret with the Mount Pelerin. I mean, secrecy was built into the cake. Oh right? yeah, and you had to be. I hate to say it because I'm not saying they're the same at all. But my first book was about the Ku Klux Klan, and to get admitted into the Ku Klux Klan, you had to go through like three readings of your name in meetings. You know, you had to have all these sponsors and stuff to keep out. You know, people who would kind of tell on them, basically, in the Mount Pelerin Society. Again, I'm not saying it's the same thing. But they had that similar kind of exclusive membership where you had to be supported by a majority of the board of directors. Your name had to be read a few times, et cetera. John Birch Society, which Charles Koch and his father were both part of, is the same thing. But so, yes, very strictly patrolled borders on the membership uh, and, uh, and, and a hostility to allowing others in, which we still see now in the Koch donor network meetings. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they strictly patrol those meetings, and they actually require, even their big donors have to leave their cell phones, they have to check their phones so that they can't tape these proceedings. So yeah, it's the stealth aspect is hardwired into all of this. And, you know, I guess, frankly, if I were them and I were um, audacious and messianic uh, enough to think that I knew for the people what was better for them and I was going to impose it on them with these kind of like crab walking uh, measures, I could, maybe I'd be like that too. I mean, you wouldn't really want the people to know what you were doing if you're doing something that if they knew about it, they would try to stop. Yeah, and you uh, point out so well in the book, which is so frightening, of like that Buchanan and Coke were like the ultimate like combo, like yes. this, this this love match, you know, at yeah. first sight made in heaven yeah. because the radicalism of Buchanan, and then he met Charles Coke, who had all this money and this desire. But like the question that I hear over and over on the streets is. If the billionaire oligarchs destroy everything, it destroys them too, right? Yes, like the, I get the asked whole that society a lot. comes down. Yeah. But like you pointed out in Democracy and Chains, that like it's really Charles Koch and James Buchanan mm -hmm. that were just so rigidly ideological that they just felt if we blow it all up, we'll go back to true Darwinism, right? Just full on mm -hmm. national natural selection. Is that, is, is yes, right? I think that is true. And I think it's really um, important perhaps for people to know too that these folks talk about things like security in a free society with Eric Prince. <laughs> Betsy DeVos is what is he, your brother-in-law? But the guy who invented no, Black, Black, Blackwater, yeah. the mercenary com uh, company. So, I mean, very much they, they envision a world of private security, of gated communities, of kind of pushing the poor into sort of warrens. Um, in the conclusion of my book, I quote uh, fairly extensively from uh, the book of somebody who has been working with Charles Koch for 25 years or more now, um, an economist who tells us that with the changes going on in our country, America's going to start looking a lot more like Texas, right? In the lack of provision of services and the extreme poverty. He says, get ready for Brazilian style favelas, shanty towns in American cities. He said, with the wage polarization that's growing, which they're promoting at every step, um, some Americans won't be able to afford to live in places with good water anymore, right? And he's right, you know, a few years later, you get Flint, and then you find out that Charles Koch's fingerprints are on the plan that led to the emergency, unaccountable emergency manager imposed on the people of Flint who routed their water supply to this cheaper water supply that was filled with lead that has caused untold damage and we're still dealing with. So they imagine themselves, I mean, Charles Koch, when he talks about this, he says, um, you know, that it's gonna, he's gonna, these changes are going to unleash unheard of prosperity and blah, 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 and maybe world peace and so forth and so on. But he never says prosperity for whom. 
right? And so I think that where we're headed as these ideas are applied is a version of where we're already going, as they have been applied, only on steroids. So massive inequality in which some people, people like Charles Koch and the people who go to his donor summits and perhaps some others in the higher echelons of our class system will do very well. And the rest of us <laughs> will be scrambling by in a world where they don't even want minimum wages, much less labor unions, mm -hmm. you know, or um, occupational health and safety protections from the government. Forget all of that. We're going to be scrambling with one another like crabs in a barrel, trying to negotiate individual contracts with employers, basically, you know, engaged in this, this race to the bottom where we drive down one another's standards so somebody can please give us a job <laughs> so right. we might have a chance to get somewhere. And meanwhile, expect that Flint-style water to spread elsewhere. Expect the public school systems to crumble. Expect public health to not get funding, as it's already doing under this Coke-controlled Republican Congress. You could go on and on. The reason I am so passionate about this issue and speaking so broadly around the country about it is because I think that these guys will bring into being, are already bringing into being a society that will be utterly unsustainable by every measure. It will be unsustainable economically for the vast majority of us. It will be unsustainable socially. It will certainly be unsustainable environmentally because they're doing everything they can to stop action on climate change in this brief window we have to save our planet. And I think it would be unsustainable, perhaps most so psychically. I think human beings and human relationships will be so devastated by the application of this program that what we're seeing now in terms of the opioid epidemic and the growth in suicides that has been reported recently, that's just the tip of the iceberg of where this is going. These guys basically believe in economic eugenics. To them, if you cannot afford health care yourself or for your family, it's better that you die and you suffer whatever comes to you than that you should get health care provided for you from tax resources paid by others in the tax system. Uh, that is why they are so desperately trying to def destroy the Affordable Care uh, uh, Act, because that is what they believe. In fact, one uh, Koch-funded uh, uh, legal strategist who's on the uh, faculty of the Scalia School of Law at George Mason, Michael Grieve, uh, said at the time the Affordable Care Act was passed, let me try to reconstruct this exactly, he said, this bastard has to be killed as a matter of political hygiene. I don't care if we drive a stake through its heart, dismember it, or uh, tar and feather it and run it out of town, this bastard has to be killed. Now, that's a law professor talking about a bill that would give health care access to millions of Americans. Just think about that for a minute, what that means. He's telling you in his own language that it is better that people die than that they should come to look to the government to think they had a right to health care in the way that every people of every other developed nation of the world have. Well, and this is, I think, the essential thing that's so chilling about your book and the time we live in and seeing all these come together is that, you know, they, um, you know, they, 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 say when you say alt-right and all the nationalists and the uh -huh. Nazis and all that, that that's way over at the fringe, right? Uh -huh. But again, it's hardwired, it's baked into the cake. If you're mm -hmm. looking at the ideolog ideological foundations, the corporate foundations, mm -hmm. the political foundations, 
I think you're right with this eugenics thing, right? I mean, they, they, we saw they don't care if thousands of people die in Chile. They don't no. care if people are Puerto enslaved. Puerto Rico, same thing. In Puerto Rico, people mm -hmm. are enslaved if children are in cages. Yeah. You know, and, and the uh, idea that it seems like Coke would be is this final so or full society where everyone finds balance. It's survival of the fittest. That yeah. Some people are going to be enslaved. Yes. Some people are going to be killed. Some yeah. people are going to rot by the wayside. Right. When I was in Buchanan's office um, uh, at Buchanan House uh, at George Mason, he actually had right by his desk uh, a copy of um, William Graham Sumner's uh, uh, essays. He was one of the leading Americans, he, the leading American social Darwinist of the late 19th century, and Herbert Spencer's work, who was the British progenitor of American social Darwinism. So, I mean, these ideas are very much part of them. And, and the reason these ideas slide off into racism is, is worth... Um, perhaps elaborating, that they, again, think that capitalism is a perfect system. The only thing that's wrong with capitalism is government getting in the way of the capitalists, right? right, right. That everything would be better if you just took all the restraints off and they'd sort it all right. out with absolute property rights. It would all be, be great and discrimination would end and everything else would all be good. Um, but, uh, but how then, if you think the system is so perfect, do you explain long-term disadvantage, right? Intergenerational disadvantage among peoples. And in America, given our history of slavery, given the nature of farm work in the Southwest, particularly African Americans and Latinos have that long-term generational uh, disadvantage and poverty. So there's a clean version of libertarianism, which will say, well, they're in poverty because the government does too much for them. And if the government stops you know, having minimum wages, they'll all go to work the and Samaritan's then they'll rot. You know, so they have, a, they, have a, yeah, they, have a, they have a nice version of this. But frequently, what you have is this slide off to the alt-right where, and it's not a few, it's a lot of libertarians find that thinking a little bit too arid. It doesn't have enough flesh and bones, enough meat to it. And they say, well, look, how come so many black people are poor? How come so many Latinos are poor? It's because something's wrong with them, right? Mm -hmm. So they slide from this arch libertarianism into a kind of racial thinking, into a kind of uh, really um, uh, chilling way of looking at society. They're so like, we don't see color and there's no institutional racism. But I think for mm -hmm. even the average uh, libertarian conservative, uh -huh. if you want to reject the idea that systemic racism exists, mm -hmm. then that pretty much, by definition, has to assume that black people are inferior mm -hmm. and Hispanics are inferior mm -hmm. because they failed to rise, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, if we acknowledge mm -hmm. that there are systemic yeah. pressures keeping right. people down, uh -huh. then everything falls apart. Yes. You know, our whole philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the philosophy that's running our country right now. Yes. And also, I think we should uh, point out that th th there's a logic of this that applies to half the population, women, <laughs> right? That they will say that women are at a disadvantage in the labor force because they choose to get pregnant and become mothers, right? Women are struggling under the care crisis. It's like, how can I possibly do all the things I'm supposed to do? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll just not have kids anymore. Um, but you anyway, just need to work harder, Nancy. Get more education. <laughs> but but the point being that these, you know, maybe a way to think about the, to understand this issue of um, libertarianism and institutional uh, um, uh, discrimination and hierarchy is that these guys have never seen a measure to promote civil rights or gender equity that they supported. Never. So we can start back with Barry Goldwater mm -hmm. uh, and the Civil Rights Act. He 
opposed the Civil Rights Act. That was his appeal <laughs> to much of the South. He also opposed the Brown versus Board of Education decision. In that, he was supported by Milton Friedman and this wider libertarian movement who said the Civil Rights Act would be a monstrosity, that nobody should be interfering with employers' freedom of decision-making, right? And besides, there wasn't any discrimination because the market yeah. It's it colorblind. I mean, race. they actually they actually were writing, key libertarians were writing articles in the 1960s before the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act saying the market is colorblind. You know, and so as a historian who studied discrimination and the yeah. origins of affirmative action programs, it's like you just have to wonder what planet these guys live on. And that's where it's really important to realize that the kind of economics that they were promoting was not empirical at all. Buchanan disdained empirical research, right? This is all thought experiments and game theory yeah. that is now being used to demolish institutions that generations of Americans on the basis of lived experience and empirical research understood that we needed to have. And we have to say this again to underscore it 40 times. This yes. is the economists that shape the uh, libertarian and conservative ideal of free markets and how this Absolutely. works uh, completely are against empirical data and research, well, now, right? now they do use empirical research. But it's research, almost like backfilling, It's almost right? like they've already predetermined the conclusions, right? Yeah, the premises must be, yes, you know, follow from the conclusions. They're weaponizing knowledge, exactly. They're weaponizing knowledge to advance the, the program. So it isn't, you know, what, it, it doesn't conform to norms of academic integrity and falsifiable hypotheses and things like this. Mm -hmm. They're building yeah. premises to support the ideas they already have, even uh, today. Yes. Well, and a, a really um, uh, telling concrete example of that is that when this Koch project at George Mason University was beginning in the late 1990s, as Koch uh, had decided that he wanted to apply this technology in a very aggressive way and start building up the infrastructure and funding operations to make this dream a reality, at that very point, the allies of the James Buchanan Center at George Mason University were pushing financial deregulation. So while Wendy Graham was uh, sending out uh, fundraising letters for the James Buchanan uh, center that were so partisan that one whistleblower said, hey, this is illegal, what she's doing in this public university under our tax laws. While she was doing that, she was married to Senator Phil Graham, who was leading the push for deregulation of Wall Street, the deregulation that brought us the financial crisis of 2008, right? So, I mean, you, you, you cannot get more direct lines between these ideas and their application and the devastation of lives of millions of people. The, the legislation that Phil Graham pushed in Washington. He was an economist himself, a believer in public choice ideas, a believer in this market fundamentalism, and he pushed legislation with the backing of this Buchanan Center at George Mason that helped bring us the financial collapse of uh, 2008, the worst recession since the Great Depression. It just like is so like bizarre a world of even like that it's all called public choice when if they want to take the public, I mean, completely out of it. Yes, it's very funny. And, and some people have asked me about that. Their original um, uh, uh, name for what they were doing was non-market decision making because, again, they were saying that they were going to take, uh, apply economic analysis to political actors in order to understand the choices they made about public 
matters. Um, but the economic analysis that they applied was a very particular one, this kind of Chicago-Austrian idea that each one of us can only be understood as an individual seeking our own personal self-interest. So therefore, he said, um, when elected officials claim to be advancing the common good or seeking the public interest, all smoke and mirrors, <laughs> really what they were trying to do is advance their own interests in either getting elected or re-elected. It's, you know, everybody in this um, scheme of ideas is corrupt. And it is a cynicism so toxic that in fact its logical result is the election of President Donald Trump. Right. Because public life has been so discredited and so many people have been steeped in these ideas of makers being uh, preyed upon by takers mm -hmm. and officials who are supposedly so corrupt in every domain of life, except corporations, <laughs> apparently, right? right. Yeah, they're um, fine. That, uh, that they, they must be, you know, sort of policed and, and, and um, driven from their places. But right. I don't well, know, and, and, and I think you're, you're, you're right. And obviously you point out in the book that the Chicago-Austrian model is so influential, but also, uh, that seems to be where Ayn Rand comes in, yeah. right? And the idea of objectivism, mm -hmm. um, which is that same thing, is that we're all inherently selfish as human beings, mm -hmm. so therefore the only virtuous way to live is to be outwardly open and embracing your own selfishness. Yes. Right? It's yeah. like the greed and is good. And glorifying selfishness. Yeah, they've yeah. elevated yeah. it. But I mean, I think that that's what interests me so much. Like you said, that if, if everyone's corrupt, and acting in their own self-interest, then of uh -huh. course government is bad. Yeah. My question is, is as a country and as mm -hmm. you know, red state Americans look at this and the average mm -hmm. conservatives, um, where does this fit in for religious people, right? If you're operating under the assumption that you know, we cannot act in any way other than selfishly, mm -hmm. you know, that seems to negate the entire uh, notion of Judeo-Christian ethics and, yes. and society. Yes. This Coke-led cause is so cynical um, that it just boggles my mind. In the 1970s, uh, Koch insisted that the people that he was funding, the organizations he was supporting, be just absolutely radical, should not compromise, never compromise on anything. Well, many of them were rabidly anti-clerical, right? They loved Ayn Rand, who is the most vitriolic anti-clerical writer you could imagine, this key libertarian figure. Um, apparently, there was a huge portrait of her in the lobby of the Cato uh, Institute. You know, so people kind of bow down before her when they came in. Uh, and uh, so she was such, that, that, that anti-clericalism was so strong on the libertarian side, Cannon was utterly contemptuous of colleagues who would come in, you know, Ash Wednesday. Apparently, he went into a purple rage once when somebody came in with ashes on his forehead. You know, just rage. And so, you know, again, they're, they're into really logical rigor, right? No place for the emotions, no place for compassion, no place for altruism, et cetera, et cetera. So what is... Um, Astonishing to me is how effectively uh, Charles Koch and the network of organizations that his uh, donor network funds have been able to co-opt so many churches uh, in particular to this project and so many religious people. They've done that, but without, again, being honest about who they are. So if you really study this libertarian philosophy, if you read their text, if you understand all this, you realize that this there is a libertarian ethical system, but it is antithetical to every major religious tradition in the world, every one. Mm 
right? Mm -hmm. That says we should help the poor, we should feed the, you know, uh, you know, uh, care for the sick, feed the, you know, help help the poor, welcome the stranger, et cetera, et cetera. The Freedom Caucus, they're the antithesis mm -hmm. of all of that, right? That's 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 what they're applying, and yet they have managed to get these entrepreneurial religious right leaders to go along with this program. And I have been trying really hard in a lot of the speaking and the radio work and such that I've done to reach out to people of faith because I really believe that Americans are good and decent people by and large, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I just do not believe that the 90% of Americans who believe in God, who have some kind of faith, understand what this libertarian cause is about. Yeah, they no, really don't. I don't think they do either. And you know, um, as a person of faith, it's very hard. And like that whole thing is like, you know, so uh, confusing to me. But you point out in the book too that like these folks were not necessarily like I, I think you said uh -huh. like you know Buchanan, Charles Koch, uh -huh. Milton Friedman, Ayn Rand. Yeah. None of these are religious people. Like right. they didn't have faith. No. Like they were. They no. either thought were cynical yeah. about it or they were agnostic yeah. or you know. In 1975, James Buchanan wrote a piece called, the, an article called The Samaritan's Dilemma. And this piece basically argued that the ethics of Jesus don't apply in the modern world. That when Jesus used the parable of the Good Samaritan to show to his followers that the good Christian will look out for anyone who's in need, even a member of what was then a despised outgroup for the Samaritans, right? When he saw, when the Good Samaritan saw this man beaten up, left for dead on the road, he helped. That's what Jesus was trying to show to his followers, <laughs> that we needed to love one another, to realize that we are all children in the light of God, that we need to be there for one another and show compassion and humanity. Buchanan wanted to say, no, that's not true. And he said that essentially what Jesus didn't understand is that, that in the modern world, there was a good chance that that victim would actually be exploiting you, would be a parasite upon you, would be a predator on your goodwill. I mean, he used the most disinhibiting language uh, in order to make people believe that people who are hurting, people who are in pain, people who are in trouble, were actually people who are going to take from them, people who are going to exploit them, people who are going to hurt them. So in a sense, they had to be kicked in the face, right? Get them out of the way. Don't, 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 don't give them any support. That's the way to the brave libertarian future. And it, it, it's just astonishing to me that that piece hasn't gotten more play. Um, it has informed the libertarian right ever since. Charles Murray wrote a book called Losing Ground that was tremendously influential uh, on the Reagan uh, administration. He's the great and it's, bell curve guy, right? Yes, exactly. And coming back to our theme of libertarianism and, and alt-right racial thinking. Uh, anyway, um, uh, these ideas have informed formed the American political right ever since then with the idea that if you help people who are in trouble or struggling or going through something, somehow you're enabling them to become parasites, right? And so that you've created a false incentive. They use this economics language to, to, you know, to make it all sound really clinical and scientific. But, you know, again, empirical research shows that it's not true. You know, right. these ideas do not hold up under empirical scrutiny. Um, and yet they persist. And the reason why they persist is because they so often um, uh, um, are supported by racism, right? Mm -hmm. By this notion that right. those people are the people who are going to be taking from you. Well, even if we assume, which you know, I think is fair, is that you know, racism is a still a struggle in our society, but that most people in their hearts don't identify as racist and probably mm -hmm. wouldn't think they are. And right. I think that's probably true, certainly people of faith. I don't really understand game theory too well, but what it seems like 
maybe I'm wrong from your book, is, you know, they kind of set up these conditions here. Uh, we have, you know, the Samaritan and the parasite, which mm -hmm. again, it's like, you're going to be objective and scientific and you're picking Samaritan and parasite. Yeah. Like that's crazy enough. But like all of the mathematical equations mm -hmm. in game theory mm -hmm. seem to be predicated on the idea that people will always act selfishly yes. every time. Yeah, there's um, a political theorist, uh, S.M. Amaday, who uh, reports in her book, um, uh, Prisoners of Reason, on research that shows that when you teach young people these ideas, they become more like them. Right? So just as you're saying, you inculcate this stuff and you start to um, uh, create the conditions that further this, um, this, this way of thinking. And I think we're seeing this in our own society too, in which you know, as we provide less and less, as we get people thinking of one another as you know, somebody who's going to be a predator on you or a mm -hmm. parasite or whatever, we're less likely to trust one another, we're less likely to help one another, and we're more likely to really feel like we're on our own. You know, we have poll data that supports that, that shows how they, we're changing from the policy changes that mm -hmm. they've made so that people, when we feel like we're in it together, you know, that feeling that one World War II, basically, right? You know, like we're, we've all got this goal yeah, and it's in all of our interests. And also it's about who we are as a people and what we value, right? What right. we stand for. People came together in incredible ways for that, right? So much self-sacrifice, so much helping of the other, so much, you know, delaying immediate gratification for the larger good. You see that there. What you see in the world that's being brought to us through these changes in policy that this cause has already uh, managed to bring into being is a very different society, one in which we are broken down, we are atomized, we are suspicious of one another, we are seeking for ourselves, and we are bitter. They are making us into a bitter people. Mm -hmm. where, where I look at you and I think, well, you know, I, I no longer have a pension at work. Why should you have it? Right. You know, why don't we just take that away from you, you know? Or right. just this sense that, again, if you think you're in it on your own, you start to, you know, a lot of nasty stuff boils up because you feel better and you feel resentful of other people. And so, again, as a scholar and a citizen and a human being, it just troubles me to watch this happening because people are pliable. Right? We're capable of all kinds of things. Each one of us, you know, as I said, contains right. multitudes. Right. But our conditions and our public policies and other things can help. They can't make it total, but they can kind of help us behave better right. or worse. Yeah, and I think, I think that's such an important uh, thing to consider, too, is that, you know, progressives like myself will say, you know, oh, those people on the right, they're dumb, they're voting against their own interests, they don't mm -hmm. see that they're pulling the wool over their eyes and whatever. Well, it's true, and yet, how could we blame anybody, no matter mm -hmm. how smart, no matter mm -hmm. how educated you are? Like you say, as human beings, we're pliable. Mm -hmm. We operate on emotion. We want to select things to support our positions. This organization has spent our entire lifetimes telling us a lie, right? Mm -hmm. And they've basically co-opted uh, one of our major two parties yeah. as their vehicle. And that is a really interesting story about how the Koch donor network has transformed the Republican Party. And they have done so, again, by applying Buchanan's ideas and weaponizing those ideas in the sense that Buchanan always said, um, if you don't like the outcome of public policy over a long period of time, stop thinking about who rules and start thinking about the rules, right? So these guys don't like the whole 20th century's worth of public policy in early 21st, um, so they don't really care 
about particular individuals. They didn't care which suit, you know, that was running in 2012, you know, mm -hmm. carried their program because they got them all to carry the program. Uh, and similarly, um, what they've done is change the incentives for the Republican Party by pooling huge amounts of dark money cash that they can use to fund primary challenges from the right against any Republican official who doesn't comply with their agenda. Um, similarly, they can reward those who do. To give you an example of how powerful that is, their changing of those incentives, which they snidely refer to as the accountability play, as our secret sauce, <laughs> one Coke official says. Um, to give you an ex example of how powerful that has been, in the 1990s, there was no difference between the two major offic elected officials in the two major parties um, about the, real uh, the science that was showing what was then called global warming, what we now call more broadly climate change. Of course, they differed in how they'd approach it in policy terms in ways you'd, you'd predict, but no difference on the science. By 2013, only eight of 278 Republican members of Congress would admit that climate change was human-caused. Eight of 278. That shows you how powerful that accountability play is, what the Kochs refer to as our secret sauce, right? So you had even people like John McCain, who was thought of as very principled um, uh, and, and showed a lot of principle at different points in his career, but he was one of those. Mm -hmm. Orrin Hatch, when they ran a primary challenge against him, longtime Reagan Republican, you know, very serious conservative, he said, and I quote him in the book, I th but I think the exact words are something like this, these people are not Republicans. They're not conservatives. They're radical libertarians. I hate these people. Right. But then who was it that denied President Obama the right to even have a hearing for his nominee to the US Supreme Court, a presidential prerogative? Mm -hmm. It was Orrin Hatch. So, yeah. I mean, it is just so powerful the way they've used these ideas to transform our system already mm -hmm. by turning one of our major political parties into an organization that on key elements of their program acts with a Leninist like discipline. So a discipline we've never seen in an American political party before. And it is price precisely because of the way they have changed the incentives. Right. Well, and even the way they, I mean, it, you can kind of tell what they're doing all the time is like, what are they accusing the progressives of? Because yeah. even like the whole Shal Alinsky and rules for radicals and you're doing this and this. Not, I, my understanding is that in the first Tea Party, the Freedom Works was putting rules for radicals on the chairs. Like you're using these tools. Yes. I have to say for most of what the, what the, what the right says now, I just, you know, I, there was a time when I was getting outraged and it's like, that is so ridiculous. And then I just realized it's all projection. So whatever they're about to do, they accuse the other side of doing. And it's almost like it disarms the criticism, you know, and turns people away from looking at the fact that they're doing it. Well, and of course, if they think that everybody's acting in their own self-interest as they right. are, then right. they're going to think about what you're going to do. And it's going to be, of course, they're doing this because that's yeah. what I would do. You yeah. know what I mean? It seems much more telling about who they are than who the other side yeah. is. Actually, we could go back to this question of the transformation of the Republican Party to an issue of concern to millions of Americans, which is health care. Um, and to see the way that the Koch network has transformed the Republican Party, you need look no further than the three health care proposals that Trump plans to transform and end uh, the Affordable Care Act last year, right? Um, and there were three separate bills that they tried to rush through the Senate, not one of them ever ever pulled above 18% support among the American people, right? None of them had majority support in any state in the country. Republicans didn't support these bills. And yet you saw almost every Republican in the Senate 
rushing to pass these bills with no floor discussion, no time for amendments, just rush to get them in. Why is that? Because the Koch Network's accountability play has made those officials more accountable to these extreme right donors than to Republican voters. And, you know, million, my, my dad voted Republican for most of his life. If he were alive now, he would be with millions of Republicans who are going like, what happened to my party? Right, you right. Well, we used to right. be the party of like business and science and Eisenhower, like a little bit of rationality. Uh, but, you know, if something has happened to one of our major political parties, that is just terrifying when you add it all up. And it is precisely that this Coke donor network has changed the incentives and the penalties in order to make elected officials compliant with this arch right tiny minority of donors rather than accountable to the American people writ large or even to Republican voters, most of whom actually, on the polls at least, want action on the environment, think that the tax system is not fair, that, that wealthy people are not paying their, their share, um, don't believe in discrimination. You could go on and on. There is so much that the American people actually share, but our views are not being acted on because of what's happened to our political system. And, and I think it's happening so fast. Like, I grew up in Indiana, and, you know, my family were always Democrats, but, like, Dick Luger, we all admired as a mm -hmm. senator. And we thought, right. this is a statesman. This is yes. a man of integrity. You know? yeah. And then he's primaried out. Yeah. And, like, all the ones that have, you know, they're either quitting or being, you know, primaried. Like, yeah. And then you have Alec, right, which, yeah. like, it seems, like, really revolutionary right. Right. because they can write their own legislation, uh -huh. pick their own people, and then walk them on the, the, the floor of the state houses, right? I yeah. Mean, Here I have to confess... When I was a kid in high school, I won some essay contest from the Republican women of my town and went to Washington and came back determined to get involved in politics. And I, I, I um, campaigned for Lowell Weicker. Um, and, you know, who Lowell Weicker from the Watergate hearings, right? He was a Republican of integrity, of reason, thoughtful, interesting, moderate. Um, and he's unthinkable today. You could not, there, there would be no, there is absolutely no place in today's Republican Party for the kind of moderate Republicans that existed the whole time that I was growing up, you know, in the 1960s and 70s, and even, you know, somewhat into the 80s. They're all gone now. It's like they've been purged, like the bison were killed off in the plain states, right? Yeah, so I, I guess I have to tie all this in and ask about public education and the uh -huh. same thing. So, like, you talked about health care. Uh -huh. How do you see them uh, working in the public education with this kind of, again, school choice, right. vouchers? Right. Well, I think what the American people really need to know about libertarians is that libertarians hate public education on principle because it's public. <laughs> they think of it, they talk about it among themselves as socialism, uh, because anything that relies on government to them is socialist, right? So this thing that has been part of who the American people are and about educating people to be citizens in a democracy for a couple hundred years now, to them that is socialism. That is a like a foreign implant that has no place in America. And if you go, as I did, into Milton Friedman's papers at the Hoover Library in Palo Alto, you will find him saying again and again and again, over the years, um, parents should be paying for their children's education the way they provide for their food and shelter. That is the system we should move towards, except for a few charity cases, he would sometimes add. But basically, you know, in the dream vision of this cause, we don't have something called public education. We have individual accounts for parents 
to choose among unregulated, because they don't believe in regulation, unregulated private schools to send their kids to schools um, that, are, that have no, no government regulation, no tax subsidies, et cetera. Buchanan said more than once he was childless, as am I, uh, but he said, why should I pay for my neighbor's child's education? He would even say it in snarky terms. Why should I pay for my, my neighbor's ballet, child's ballet lessons, uh -huh. right? Now, I'm a childless person, but I understand that, again, kids are, you know, like, we should all be supporting kids. They're the future generation. And if you want to think about it in their terms, they're the people who could help pay for your Social Security. But again, these guys don't even believe in Social Security, right? right. So nobody else is going to pay into my individual you know, 401k. So therefore, they'd say, I shouldn't want to support taxation for an education system in our society. I mean, they are not telling the American people at all how radical they are. Because again, in Friedman's papers, I would see him engaging in these debates with fellow libertarians and people on the right about voucher programs and things like that. And he, he thought they shouldn't have voucher programs, say, in urban communities, uh, urban poor communities, because uh, that would um, uh, make for a poor program, whereas they should be going for the whole hog program. And these other people would say, we agree with you completely. We want to get rid of public education, too. We share the goal, but we think this is the means to move that, that ball down the, the field. Um, so there are these tactical differences. But if, and again, our journalists don't the even know enough it, to the ask. The means is to start with poor neighborhoods. For, of that's color. what they said. That's what they said. Yeah. But so and, who was saying that? Where was that? So these really are these are debates, you know, in, in, that Friedman would have with folks in the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, you know, all the main libertarian and right wing groups. People would say, oh, we we agree with you on the goals, but here's how we want to do it. You know, we want to do it in this kind of incremental way over time. Um, but they would say we share the goal. And here's a, another place where I think um, we're being ill served by most of our media because people don't know this history, right? And so they don't even know to ask the questions. So when people on the right, like the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, says she wants to improve education, right? They don't say, do you support public education? Do you support the principle of that? They can't honestly answer that, yes, because they don't, right? right? Well, they they the want to see it eliminated. They see it in the Senate confirmation hearing and she refuses to answer. Like, do they yeah. have any role? Do they have any of this? Yes. So why do you think then... Um, does that tie into the reason that most of these charter programs and voucher programs start in urban areas of color where it's uh -huh. because they're not sure of what the outcome will be or is that just the way they can sell it? Well, here's an irony of this history, uh, which is that although the Republicans' classic base was white people, you know, of greater means, often suburbanites, you know, in the 1970s as we became a more suburban society, the thing about white folks in suburban communities is they like their public schools and a lot of them chose those suburban, particular suburban communities because of the schools, right? Um, and so they were having trouble getting any support for this education privatization agenda in these white suburban communities. And so there's actually discussion uh, in these organizations like Heritage and Cato and so forth when they realized this was failing. This program was failing in the suburbs because people love their schools. Uh, so they should go where people didn't love their schools. And where people didn't love their schools was in urban communities where there had been white flight, where the schools were very ill-supported, and where 
court decisions from the right, beginning with Milliken versus Bradley uh, in 1971 that outlawed metropolitan desegregation plans. So it basically, um, Milliken versus Bradley kind of put a, a tourniquet around the cities, or, or I don't know, like a barrier around the cities and said, we won't go into the suburbs at all, so whatever problems you have can only be remedied within city limits. So the bottom line is that the promise of Brown versus Board of Education uh, had never been delivered, right? I mean, it, it was barely delivered in the South. You know, nothing happened until the Civil Rights Act was passed and there was some enforcement. But we never got the equal education that the Brown versus Board of Education decision promised African Americans. And as school quality was deteriorating with white flight, with declining tax bases, with deindustrialization and so forth, the schools were getting worse and worse. And so the right started targeting black parents, dissatisfied parents in these communities as what they called at the time non-traditional constituencies, right? And making a big play for discontented, black parents in cities. And that's part of the reason, too, I think, that many Democrats came over to the um, agenda for choice and charter schools and so forth, because they were representing urban communities where people were dissatisfied with their schools. Uh, and they didn't really get that this was part of an effort to totally re-engineer re our society and government by promoting school privatization. So it's, it's a complex landscape. And I do understand why some black parents, I mean, no, no parent wants to see the light go out of their children's eyes, right? You know, your kid goes to school in kindergarten and they're all bright eyed and excited and, you know, picking up books and learning and coloring and learning their numbers. And, you know, there's a joy there, right? And if you're in a bad school over time, that joy dissipates, right? And it becomes something very different. So I totally get why parents felt desperate to get something better for their children, but sadly, they were being exploited by this political right that was targeting them in the same way, frankly, that um, the Koch network uh, exploited Tea Party participants. The best study that we have of the Tea Party by two sociologists who went and interviewed every single rank and file Tea Party member they could find. They went to grassroots meetings. They talked to all the grassroots leaders. They could not find a single rank and file Tea Party member who wanted to see the privatization of Social Security and Medicare. But the Koch network which was funding all this and using them as a battering ram in order to move this political agenda, seeks what? The privatization of Social Security and Medicare. So they're just, they're dishonest with the, the people they depend on. And to me, that, that treating other people as instruments of your will is just so, um, I don't know, it's just foreign to who, who, who I am as a person. And I think it's actually foreign to who most Americans are. Well, and I think, you know, so much of what they do is antithetical to American ideals anyway. And the thing, you know, whether it's choice or free markets, they really try to sell this idea of freedom. Yes. But the more I think about it uh -huh. and our race history ties into it, it doesn't seem like they, the real thing they like is freedom. It's they like competition and they like to win and, uh -huh. and they cheat. Uh-huh. You know? Well, I actually think, I think it is worth um, uh, um, kind of parsing the notions of freedom and liberty. There's a, a brilliant uh, poem by Langston Hughes, the Harlem Renaissance uh, poet, called Refugee in America. And this poem has two stanzas, and uh, they're diametrically opposed. And the first one is about freedom, and the second one is about liberty. Okay, quick timeout. I'm going to jump in here really fast with a clarification and then uh, a gift. So the clarification is, this poem is actually called Words Like Freedom by Langston Hughes. I had never heard of it until Nancy mentioned it, uh, but then I looked it up when I got home, and it is lovely and haunting. The gift is that 
I wanted to share it as part of this podcast, but I didn't think it was appropriate for me to read it. I wouldn't do it full justice. And so I reached out to uh, an old friend of mine uh, from my theater school days back in the day, an extremely uh, lovely and talented actor named Paul Oakley Stovall. Now, Paul is currently touring on the national tour of Hamilton in the role of George Washington, and he also worked uh, on the advance team for Michelle Obama for the entire Obama administration. So, yeah, I know some cool people. And Paul was cool enough to agree to read this for all of us. So here he is. There are words like freedom, sweet, and wonderful to say. On my heartstrings, freedom sings all day, every day. There are words like liberty that almost make me cry. If you had known what I know, you would know why. All right, pretty great, huh? I just thought I should share that. So now we're going to dive back in and hear Nancy uh, parsing the words freedom and liberty in terms of uh, our, our overall discussion. Thanks again, Paul. The freedom stanza is about, you know, how amazing freedom is and how he loves it and it's on his heartstrings every day and blah, blah, blah. And the second one is about liberty and about how frightening it is and how scary. And, and then he ends up with saying, if you'd known what I knew, you'd know the reason why. And I think that is really an important distinction for Americans to take to heart. This libertarian cause, when it tells the truth, it is about liberty, not about freedom. And the liberty that it is for is economic liberty for those who already have. <laughs> Right? to do what they want with their property and with their wealth with no interference from anybody else in the citizenry. And I think that is really an important distinction for Americans to take to heart, that this libertarian cause, when it tells the truth, it is about liberty, not about freedom. And the liberty that it is for is economic liberty for those who already have, right? mm -hmm. to do what they want with their property and with their wealth with no interference from anybody else in the the citizenry. Whereas freedom is a value of the progressive side of the spectrum going back to slavery, right? To people who said, I will not be a slave, you know, and who managed to escape, or the people who became abolitionists and said it's a sin. It is a sin. It is a violation. And they were all religious in those days, the abolitionists, but you know, it is a violation of of of, of um, it, it is blasphemy to hold another person as property, right? That we are all, again, children in the light of God. Um, and so people must be free. That value of freedom has been a part of the left ever since, right? The farmers who wanted to be free from domination by the railroads in the, the, the populist movement of the 1890s, the workers who didn't workers, want to be I mean, yeah. dominated by the boss, who wanted to be able to say what they thought and work together and organize and have some dignity and autonomy. The civil rights movement, you know, stopping the lynching, stopping the intimidation, women who wanted to be able to, you know, realize their potential and be treated as, as um, not just chunks of meat. Like in all of these situations on the left, freedom mm -hmm. has been a value of mm -hmm. the left. And what has been counterposed against it is liberty, mm -hmm. this property rights supremacy and this notion that some have almost a divine right to dominate others. So I say, let them have liberty, reclaim freedom. Let's have an honest debate. That's awesome. The State Policy Network and the dark money that we're uh -huh. fighting against some in our day at Nutrier, you know, the only thing they push is school choice because they say, oh, well, we should have all this privatization, whatever. But when I ask them, would you like school choice for Nutrier yeah. High School? Are you uh -huh. suggesting that anyone in Cook County should be able yeah. to come to Nutrier? Oh, nice. It was crickets, right? Yeah, because yeah, of yeah. Of course they don't want that. Yes, exactly. But I think that, again, because they play on our, whether racism drives them or whether mm -hmm. they're just 
very adroit at playing on our racial mm -hmm. issues in this country. It seems like starting with these, uh, these schools in the urban areas works, but like to your point, it's branching out now to mm -hmm. middle America. It's going yeah. to rural America. And you know what they want to do, it seems like, is mm -hmm. just take their dollars out of yes, the, the tax common system. Pool. Yeah. And so you know, education, which I would say, maybe you could make the argument that if there is such a thing as American exceptionalism, mm -hmm. it was our public education system. And now it's going to be gone for, you know, yes. I mean, 90% of the students in this country will, will not be able to have a decent education yeah. if we don't have that kind of regulation, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. The State Policy Network and the dark money that we're uh -huh. fighting against Seminar Day at Nutrier, you know, the only thing they push is school choice because they say, oh, well, we should have all this privatization, whatever. But when I ask them, would you like school choice for Nutrier yeah. High school. Are you <laughs> suggesting that anyone in Cook County should be able yeah. to come to Nutria? Oh, nice. It was crickets, right? Yeah, because yeah, of yeah. Of course they don't want that. Yes, exactly. But I think that, again, because they play on our, whether racism drives them or whether mm -hmm. they're just very adroit at playing on our racial mm -hmm. issues in this country, it seems like starting with these, uh, these schools in the urban areas works. But, like, to your point, it's branching out now to mm -hmm. middle America. It's yeah. going to rural America. And you know what they want to do, it seems like, is mm -hmm. just take their dollars out of yes, the, the tax common system. Pool. Yeah. And so you know, education, which I would say, maybe you could make the argument that if there is such a thing as American exceptionalism, mm -hmm. it was our public education system. And now it's going to be gone for, you know, 90% yes. I mean, of the students in this country will, will not be able to have a decent education yeah. if we don't have that kind of regulation, right? Right. Yes, absolutely. And ironically, um, the rural areas on which this project um, depends for votes are probably going to be the most hurt by this because there is no choice in many of these small towns, right? Or farming communities or former farming communities. There's like one school, right? And you start pulling out tax dollars to go elsewhere, you're gonna gut that school. You're gonna make things much worse than they are now where already people are sad because their kids don't wanna stay in town because they wanna go where there's opportunity, et cetera. So this program is actually doing the exact opposite of what people need in order to realize their hopes for uh, their children and their communities. And what we see in Indiana is they're pushing them, like with K-12, they're doing these virtual schools, which are just like complete criminal operations yeah. that Betsy DeVos was yes. involved in and Michael Milken. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that's so weird in Indiana is as that happens and they get rid of these, they're consolidating these school districts, you know, the, the towns are, the property values are falling. Yeah. You know, the businesses are, are failing. Yeah. The chambers of commerce, though, which seem to be aligned with these, you know, libertarian yeah. interests continue to support the policies that are in effect starting yeah. to and will gut their whole community. Yeah, that's something that we're also uh, seeing here in North Carolina, and it's another pattern that goes back to the period of massive resistance in Virginia, in which the uh, business leaders, leaders, <laughs> perhaps in quotation marks, did not lead. They were very, very, very quiet and did not speak out against this program. It was only after essentially the mothers and the ministers <laughs> started the Save the Schools movement in the 1950s that the industrialists um, of the time found their voice. And then they worked in their quiet ways, but they did say, hey, this is crazy. We can't, we can't develop the state of Virginia you know, or some of these other places if we don't have a sound educational system. Uh, so that's, that's a continuing pattern. What worries me now is that so many corporate leaders go along with this Koch Network project um, because they think they're going to get something from it, right? They're going to get a, a 
be able to avoid regulation, right? Or they're going to be able to pay lower wages, or they won't have to give families, you know, uh, uh, Family Medical Leave Act, you know, comply. They won't have to do all these other things that they, they find irksome. But what these guys don't understand is what this cause is really about and what it's going to do to our society. So let's just take the question of climate change. Right, that this Koch network is working not just in the United States, but transnationally to prevent any action on the climate by governments while we still have a window to do something about our planet. And I say to myself, what is the matter with corporate leaders in our country in sectors, I mean, just forget the human toll, right? Forget the human rights nightmare that's gonna come from climate uh, change over time and all those other things. Let's just think about the bottom line. Let's, let's be businessmen, right? <laughs> agriculture, tourism, insurance, you could go on and on. There are so many industries that are going to find themselves devastated by climate change in their bottom lines. Mm -hmm. And yet they are not speaking out about this. And yet they are not talking about what's being done to democracy as we speak, to the degradation of our norms, to the degradation of public discourse, to the, 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 the blatant lying, you know, Mm -hmm. all the things, the bullying, all the things that are going on that are, are putting our society like that. You know, I mean, we're going downhill fast. And these guys can't find their voices, these business leaders. Um, and it's the same thing that happened in, in um, the, the period of the civil rights era, that only after there was this mass mobilization among other sectors of the population did some of these folks get the courage to speak. And I, I will say now we do have some. There's like Nick Hanauer in Seattle and some of these other people who have been vocal. But... We're not seeing anything like the um, open discussion and the pushback that we need from those business folks. So we had these two characters in Tip of the Spear, Pat Hughes and Dan Prof. They were from the mm -hmm. Illinois Policy Institute. They were the ones that brought this case mm -hmm. that's Janus. What do you think the repercussions of the or significance of the Janus ruling will be? The Janus ruling will have huge repercussions. Um, you can look at what happened in Wisconsin under Scott Walker um, with the radical changes he put into effect and the way that that's devastated uh, public sector um, unions and public education and other things in Wisconsin and magnify that, multiply it to what's going to happen to the country. Um, they waged this litigation using uh, a constitutional language of freedom of speech, which is a great irony because these guys have spent years trying to deprive workers of freedom of speech <laughs> with the right to organize in their companies, right? And also pushing through legislation against whistleblowers, you know, so that whistleblowers couldn't be free to expose, like, you know, a company poisoning the community. No, they're against all those things. So they're not really for freedom of speech. But what they understand uh, about um, public sector unions is that public sector unions do not simply support themselves. And I, I cite stuff in the book to this effect, but um, they are crucial supporters, defenders of social security system, of Medicare, of a lot of other public goods, and most people are not aware of that, of the lobbying power, the, the, the broad-based progressive lobbying power of labor unions and particularly public sector uh, unions. And so they have wanted to take those unions out for a long time to destroy them. And they are using Buchanan's ideas to do this and public choice ideas more generally. And um, to wit, one of the original insights of public choice thought from a guy, from one of the rare people who wasn't on the political right, a guy named Mancare Olson, uh, wrote a book called The Logic of Collective Action. 
if you have voluntary organizations, you will have a free rider problem, right? Because some people won't do the work. They'll just like, why don't I let you do it? I'd rather be home watching Netflix, you know? Um, and so unless there's some element of coercion, many important things that our values lead us to support, that our desires lead us to support won't happen. Right? I mean, you could say that with traffic regulations, right? If we didn't have penalties and incentives, you know, we wouldn't get, we'd all be dead in, in car accidents. Similarly, uh, taxes. You know, I don't support everything the government does, but I don't consider it my free speech right to say I'm not going to pay taxes because I don't want to support the military complex or something like that. Right. But I believe that will be the next step of this Janus case is to, to go after the tax system once they've laid this stone in place. But so what they're doing here is knowing that there will be a temptation of people to free ride on others' work and labors, knowing that real incomes have been going down for most American households since the 1970s, they are counting on the fact that there will be growing numbers of free riders so the unions will collapse and not be able to represent workers as they did before. But not leaving anything to chance, they also have organizations like the Freedom Foundation that is going door to door now trying to uh, get people to stop paying dues to their unions. <laughs> oh, really? They're oh, yeah, yeah. No, multiple states. Multiple states they're doing this. Oregon, California, and someplace else. And then that model, it sounds like, is going to move, be moved elsewhere. But instantly, as soon as that decision came down, they went into action. So this is such an integrated, comprehensive, long-game strategy most Americans would be gobsmacked <laughs> if they understood how radical, how integrated, and how strategic it is. But they don't care about worker voice. You know, they use that language of liberty in order to move this, this, this ball down the field to make it so that we have no collective organizations strong enough to resist this kind of corporate takeover of our society. So what, what can we do? I'm not even asking for this anymore. Like, is there, I mean, I'm sure you're asked that all the time. It's, uh, we're in a pretty serious place. I, I don't think it's an irredeemable place, um, but I think it is going to be a very steep uphill climb. I think that time is absolutely of the essence. I think that what happens within the next one to three years will be decisive. I used to think about this, I would say, decisive for generations to come. I can't even say that anymore because when you factor climate change in, when you factor in what's happening to the planet, it's like we don't even have a metric for how um, profound this transformation is going to be and how far-reaching uh, its ramifications. So we have got to get serious. <laughs> we have got to pay attention. Um, and we have got to realize that we're dealing with a cause that doesn't want us to be paying attention, that doesn't want us to be understanding what's happening to our society, and that certainly doesn't want us to be able to resist it. That said, I've been traveling around um, the country for a year now since the, my book came out, and I have just been um, stunned and inspired by how many people from different um, uh, Domain, when I speak on campuses from so many different disciplines, when I speak in communities from so many different kinds of, you know, churches, senior citizens groups, civil rights groups, women, labor unions, community organizers, environmentalists, they're all understanding that something has changed that is really frightening. That means we cannot keep doing what we used to do in the same way and think that we're going to achieve what we need to achieve. Particularly, what people have understood is that even though progressives have been winning the battle of ideas on issue after issue, whether it's living wages, you know, doing 
better by our education system, action on um, you know, our air and water quality, all these kinds of things have, have mass support, and yet progressives are steadily losing power because of the way this causes rigged the rules. So what I'm hearing from people that I'm um, speaking with and, and engaged with is that they realize that they've got to change it up, right? Come up with a new messaging, a kind of unifying messaging that involves what we all depend on, which is genuine, accountable, um, transparent democracy, <laughs> for one, where there isn't an outsized role for money. Um, that is a crucial thing. Um, also, new kinds of alliances. The progressive side of our politics has been fractured into silos for years now, and th that has become very, very destructive and has led to very short-term focus rather than long-term. So that's another area. Uh, and there are folks now working on an agenda to unchain democracy, right? Um, so there is a lot happening that is encouraging among those who are organized, and there are new people getting involved in organizing that we've never seen before. You know, the Red for Ed mobilization in, in states like my own North Carolina, Oklahoma, uh, Kentucky, West Virginia, etc. These teachers and the parents and kids in their community saying, enough, you're destroying our education system. We want to save it. Um, so that, the students of Parkland, you know, who have said, come on, adults, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to have to go and do drills every week to see if we're going to die in our schools where we should be learning. I love these kids. They say, you know, why, we have to show adults how to use our cell phones. Why do we have to show them how to use our democracy? But they are, and they're out there doing amazing things around the country, these young people. There's also the mothers and grandmothers and the indivisible groups and the broader resistance. So around the country, I think people are getting that this is an emergency moment, that's an all hands on deck moment for our democracy. And that if we don't start paying attention now, informing people as best we can and activating them to deal with this threat to our democracy using the First Amendment freedoms we still have, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, but I, I do not believe it's too late. I believe that we have the capacity to do this. And as a historian um, with a long view, I uh, believe that we are in a critical moment right now that is not as dramatic as the two that are most analogous, um, but is, is like them in its fundamental dynamics. And those two moments are the 1860s, when the property rights supremacists, you know, inspired by John C. Calhoun, wanted to defend their system of holding other people in bondage in the name of liberty uh, by seceding from the U.S., right? That was a huge crisis in our society that led to a bloody civil war. And yet, that war was won when? When it became a war for emancipation, not just a war for the savior, saving of the Union. And we got a renewal of democracy with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and those short-lived albeit short-lived reconstruction governments. Similarly, in the 1930s, the property rights supremacists, the American Liberty League, who are the direct progenitors of the Koch operation, did not want to do anything about the American, what was happening to the American people in the Great Depression, right? <laughs> they blamed it on the victims, said, just let the crisis pass. Then, then, then we'll, you know, people are suffering. They can't eat. You know, men were committing suicide because they couldn't support their families, and these guys wanted to do nothing. Well, how do we get through that? A massive movement of working people, senior citizens mobilized for the old age pensions, what became ultimately Social Security, and we reinvented democracy for a new era. And it worked pretty well for, you know, several generations. We have the same challenge today. We would not be facing the Coke challenge had not the chronic 
weaknesses of American democracy in the modern period enabled this in terms of money and politics, lack of transparency, all these other things. Voter apathy. But yeah, so but I think that in order to uh, get through this acute crisis successfully, we will need to address these chronic problems. And I do believe that when we do, we will have renewed, if we succeed, <laughs> which is a long shot, but it's possible, if we succeed, in order to succeed, we will have to renew and reinvigorate our democracy for the conditions of the 21st century uh, so that we can meet the tremendous challenges that we have and take advantage of the great opportunities. If we don't, we will be living in a country that none of us would recognize and that very few of us would want to live in. It would be a, it, literally dystopian horror for most of us what this Coke cause is trying to bring into effect. It already feels a little bit like that this exactly. week, but I take it the does. point. It totally does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nancy, thank you. You're your, welcome. Your book it was is fun. amazing, and I am. It's such an honor to talk to you. I've been. I feel like you know. I want to talk to you like the last six months. So I just thank you for. Oh well, this. sure. Thank you for the work that you're doing, yeah. and thank you guys for working on oh, this. Oh my gosh. And yeah. again, I pity the editors, but well, it's, I'm part of it. Yeah, pity me. Oh, don't pity me, anybody. Uh, that was a great conversation, and I was uh, really lucky to uh, have it. Uh, boy, what an amazing uh, discussion and a great uh, person Nancy McLean is. So our huge thanks to her. Thanks to Todd Cimino and Chris Lane for making this happen. Thanks to Paul Stovall for sharing his talents with us today. And again, thanks to all of you for taking the time. You know, um, it really was starting to end on a positive note there. You know, how we come together, what we do, what we get. And then, you know, um, we had to just, uh, you know, look at our actual reality one more time there at the tail end. And um, yeah, hopefully that didn't, uh, you know, let the uh, uh, wind out of the uh, sails or whatever uh, metaphor you want. But you know what? There is a lot of work that we can do. Um, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. That was always our theme with uh, Tip of the Spear, and it continues to be our motto for the long con. Um, we are all in this together. I think we do need to come up with a sense of what it means to be American, what responsibilities we do have as Americans to each other, and more importantly, you know, to our kids. How are we going to continue uh, to live uh, together? Uh, because the way we're doing it now just, just ain't working for most of us. And, um, you know, we can make plenty of space for the billionaires to be billionaires and the wealthy to be wealthy and the markets to stay uh, as unregulated as is possible and as makes sense. Um, but I think it's time we all uh, come together and realize that, um, you know, our, our fear and our entrenchment that, um, you know, we have on both sides of the aisle right now um, is not only not serving us, but it's not really reflective of the true reality in that, you know, we have more uh, in common as Americans. There's much more that uh, unites us than divides us. And also uh, much of our anxiety, much of the problems that we're facing, much of these um, immense um, and seemingly uh, at sometimes insurmountable challenges we face are because of this policy combine, this shadow state that has been implemented and um, foisted upon us uh, unwittingly by um, a tiny group of uh, very powerful people and uh, and their lackeys. And it's uh, it's time for us to uh, say that's not enough, I would say. Um, doesn't matter who you vote for in the next election. I think we all need to start getting accountability in Washington. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're all paying attention, you know, and having these conversations and remembering that at the end of the day, 
we all love our neighbors, our country, and our families. So uh, you might have heard a little <laughs> chirping in the background, speaking of families, as uh, my old family is here. Schools are closed. Work is done. Travel is over. So um, anyway, hope that you are uh, staying healthy and able to spend a little quality time with uh, your uh, family and loved ones as well. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you uh, next time uh, back here on The Long Con. Thanks, everybody. God bless.